see, this is my life. It always will be. There's nothing else. Just us. And the cameras. And those wonderful people out there in the dark. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Ready for Close-Up after a long summer break. And welcome back, Andy. Hi, Sam. So good to be back. Good to have you. It has been a truly memorable long summer for both of us. And I think we will cherish the memories of the past two months for a long time. Our respective journeys have brought us back together at the microphone, however, and we are ready for a walk down memory lane today. Not our own personal, necessarily, but, as usual, down cinema's wonderfully rich reservoir of movie memories. So this is episode 19 on the father and other great movies on memory. But first of all, Andy, besides everything else, have you had the chance to collect a few more movie souvenirs over the summer? I think for me, summer is always a bit uh, a peculiar season for movies. I think one is much more outside, much more outdoorsy, traveling. So to be honest, I didn't watch as many movies as I usually would. But I've seen a few very nice movies in the cinema. One was In the Heights from director John Chu, who also directed Crazy Rich Asians. And it's the movie adaptation of a Broadway musical from Lin-Manuel Miranda. And it deals with Hispanic and Latino, a Latino community in, in New York, in the Washington Heights. And it's a musical about their dreams, about their aspirations. Another movie I saw in the cinema was The Green Knight, uh, starring Dev Patel and Alicia Vikander. And it's this fantasy retelling of the medieval story of Sir Gavin and the Green Knight. And this was a very nice cinematic experience because it's also very allegorical. It's very symbolic. It's not your straight up fantasy action movie that you might expect when watching the trailer. So it was really an interesting experience with beautiful images. And in the podcast world, I listened to season two of the TCM movie podcast, The Plot Thickens, which is called The Devil's Candy. And it's about the production of the 1990 movie Bonfire of the Vanities from Brian De Palma. And there, Julie Salomon, a journalist, she was actually during the whole of the movie production on set following Brian De Palma. And so she was basically chronicling the production of this movie that became a very notorious flop in the end. So this is a very interesting oral story as well of a misfire in movie history. Sam, do you have anything else you, you binge watched or you discovered over the summer months? Well, first of all, I have to agree with you that, that this was really not a summer of going to the cinema. I was traveling for a longer period of time and just managed to see one film at a theater. And we'll talk about it later. But besides that, um, of course, I was also listening to my usual podcasts. I have uh, the soundtrack podcast Settling the Score that I listen to all the time. And they were talking about Mel Brooks movies and his favorite composer, John Morris. And I also discovered a really interesting couple of podcasts about the world of Bond. One is called Really 007. And those guys, they do six-hour reviews of each Bond film. And this was about Diamonds of Forever. At first, I thought I wouldn't get through it, but it was fantastic, you know, kind of like a scene-by-scene. Scene. And they're really fun 
interaction and they had one guest on the show from a new website called License to Queer, which is kind of like a queer review of everything Bond and I've been following this this guy now for a number of weeks and his stuff is fantastic. So I had time to do that. Besides that, I mostly watched Golden Girls. <laughs> okay. So I binge watched that once more. It's just a show that I think you can watch over and over again. And whenever I don't know what to watch and it's a little late uh, this summer, I, I would watch one or two episodes of The Golden Girls. Just still so sharp and campy and fun. Just one of the best. I've also started Young Royals on Netflix and I've enjoyed it so far. I've only seen the first couple of episodes and it's about you know, young uh, future monarchs, the Swedish miniseries and one of them realizes that he's more interested in one of the guys at his boarding school rather than his royal responsibilities and it's this love story slash high school drama. Definitely it's necessary to go back to the cinema soon but I must say the one movie that I saw is also the one we want to talk about right now because it was pretty spectacularly fantastic I thought. <laughs> for many reasons and this was The Father, the doubly Oscar winning film adaptation of Florian Zeller's play of the same name starring Anthony Hopkins as a father and Olivia Colman as maybe his daughter and it's the movie we want to put at the center of today's episode because we both saw it and we both liked it a lot and we thought it would give us a chance to talk about depicting memories in movies. What's the matter, Dad? Strange things going on around us. Don't worry. Everything will sort itself out. Saw it in his eyes, didn't know who I was. It was like I was a stranger to him. Just did something to me. I don't know what she's cooking up against me, but she's cooking something up. What are you talking about, Dad? I'm not leaving my flat! I am not leaving my flat! This really is my flat. Isn't it? But maybe let's start off with saying why we liked The Father so much. I would say straight up the acting of Anthony Hopkins. I think this is really spectacular. Now I understand why he won the Oscar. Top of the class, I would say you can really see that this is a seasoned actor. But he's still so capable of commanding a scene, of creating emotions, of giving this character life. And it's just really astonishing to see him work. All the other supporting actors are great as well. I mean, Olivia Colman is also really great. Um, I think there's Imogen Poots in it as well. Olivia Williams. So I think the supporting cast is really also very strong, as it should be. It's a small movie in the terms of, of scale but I think it's really one of those movies that really pack a punch also until the very end and it's this story of an elderly man who's at home and he's visited by his daughter played by Olivia Colman yeah in the beginning it seems to be a very normal father-daughter relationship she's telling him she's moving to Paris and he's listening to his music and just a little things that, um, that, yeah, he might have forgotten his watch in the bathroom or he thinks the cleaning lady stole. So these little details of, of an everyday conversation and only slowly we're starting to realize that he has Alzheimer's, that he's forgetting, that he's not recognizing people anymore. And the way this is done, the way the movie is able to capture his inner life, his, his feelings, it, it's really stunning. I totally agree with, first of all, Anthony Hopkins is performance. I remember one of our past episodes we were talking about when he had won the Oscar and of course 
it was one of the scandals of the night that it, the Oscar went to him, but really deservedly so. This is a stunning performance and one for the ages. And I think one astonishing thing about the film, I thought, and I think it goes to what you were saying just at the very end, really taken in to this experience of not quite knowing who is who and what is what. So we were kind of taken along by the film into this experience of, of, of memory loss mm-hmm. and not being quite sure whether this is your daughter or the other woman is your daughter, which is brilliantly done in the film. You're not sure until almost the very end, like whether you, you know, Olivia Colman really is his daughter because there's a number of other candidates. And this happens repeatedly. People turn out to be either possibly part of the hospital or the home that he's at, but we're not quite sure. The apartment that he lives in might be his still, or he might be living with his daughter. Also, the, the setting changes every mm. once in a while. And and really, I think this, this sense of disorientation is, is put on you by the screenplay, by the camera work, by the director. And I think that the supporting players are, are quite important. Of course, Olivia Coleman has the biggest part, but... The others are still faces that come back in different roles and different shapes and forms. And in a way, they all remain important because you don't quite know whether they are or whether it's just someone else from his memory or from the past or from his present situation that he's in. I think that, that to me, was the most brilliant part about the father, this co-experiencing with Anthony, who's also called Anthony in, in the film, by the way. It's not a big-scale movie. It's based on a play, but... The way that the movie also shifts the scenery ever so slightly, so the apartment where basically the whole lot of the movie takes place. Scene by scene, suddenly there's new furniture, there are little details gone, new images hanging that also suddenly have an importance. And then when it's filled with with actors who give it so much life, yeah, you're really immersed into this experience of, of someone who has Alzheimer's, who has this sense of disorientation, as you said. To me, this was something that has not been done that often so I think it was a really immersive great cinematic experience and I think what was both fabulous and unsettling was the the shifts in mood as well because when I was putting together a few notes for today I thought in a way there's some elements of, of comedy in it where you there are you know laughs there's absurd moments when he misremembers something or when suddenly people mm-hmm. change or, or uh, people's reactions to to his behavior that is sometimes comedic and you you feel it's a light-hearted movie but then the way they use for instance the apartment and you're never quite sure where you are the sense of disorientation also had elements of a horror movie because sometimes you were going along the corridors and you would go around the corner and then you would expect you know someone to be there but you didn't know who it was so that's the same tactic that is used in in horror films well or in suspense movies Mm -hmm. so i thought that also added to the sense of uncertainty you you were laughing in one moment and then it felt like heart-wrenching to realize that he had forgotten something that was important in his life he couldn't remember what happened to his one daughter for instance and she would show up again and again in conversation and then on the other hand there would be that that almost frightening dimension where he would be in the kitchen and you didn't know what would happen next and who would come home and Mm -hmm. who those people were so i think that added to it that you weren't you didn't quite know what genre of, of film that was and in the end what it would be yes and i think also the way that they use time 
I think initially you you're also confused, but then start you're starting as an audience, you're starting to realize is this just the depiction of one day or is this the depiction of two hours that repeat themselves over again or did this happen already five months ago? The movie is really playing also with our notions of time, and this is actually when you watch a movie, you expect a certain coherence from a movie like this. I would say from a from a drama, you you think okay, I can orient myself. This is the scene then. This happens and the next scene follows after so there is a cohesion in 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 a timeline and the movie is repeating scenes from different angles and you're then starting to realize oh okay this was the dinner that was already two days ago and you thought this there were two days in between but actually it wasn't so there are really a lot of great cinematic tricks i would say that underline this confusion this disorientation not just anthony anthony hopkins but <laughs> anthony the character but also the the audience itself is constantly disoriented and i really like what you said about this this notion of effects from horror movies because it is unsettling and also these switches that you mentioned this ah oh, he's funny he's lighthearted he makes jokes and then it switches into his very cold brutal demeanor it's it's unsettling and it has these qualities which is really really astonishing yeah and of course casting is perfect in that sense you know anthony hopkins has been one of the most infamous horror movie character in history and to have him play that role in a way because he's an unsettling yes. actor as well who can go from quaint old man that you want to hug to a monster within within a few seconds he can be very controlling and he can seem so lost and if we talk about for instance the ending without giving it away but he he's so lost in the end himself of who he is and where he is and who the people around him are. It's it's heart-wrenching, but then sometimes with his breakouts of, of anger and frustration, he almost seems seems menacing. So I think it's that really that, that huge range that he gets to play in that role. It's almost the, the ultimate role for him because he gets to do everything here. One thing that, that you mentioned before, what I thought was stunning as well, was even though there is that playing around with time and uh, scenes repeat themselves, in a way we feel still at the end of the film that it's been like a journey that had a beginning and an ending. And I thought that was brilliant as well. You felt that even though you were confused so often, the journey of this man has taken you from A to B to Z in a way, at least emotionally or by puzzling mm -hmm. and figuring things out of what is actually going on. Even though you might not solve everything at the end, but uh, you, you see development of, of that character and where he might end up at the end, even though we're not 100% sure. So that I thought was, was brilliant. How can you tell a confusing film, but still make it make sense so much at the end in terms of an emotional journey? You see, the situation is very simple. My daughter is of the opinion that I cannot manage on my own. I'm so sorry about this. Why? She understands perfectly. is important. I explained it all to you. Why do you keep looking as if there's something wrong? Everything is fine. I think she tries to do the best she can for you, Anthony. Everything will be all right. I promise you. There's something funny going on. So the father seems to be a 
perfect film about memory, loss of memory, importance of memory. But there are other great films that have done that in the past in very different ways. What were the first ones that came to mind for you? One that came to mind initially when we discussed about this topic, I think, was um, Rashomon by Akira Kurosawa. It's a Japanese movie from 1950. There has been a crime and then there are three or four witnesses and everyone is retelling their version, how they remembered the happenings of, of this incident, of this murder. With each new section of the woodcutter who witnessed it, something, a bandit who was involved, the wife, and then... So they're different characters and they all tell the story from a different angle. And each time you get a new truth out of it. And I think this movie is really, really a great testimony on, on how subjective memory can be. What a great movie device it also is. Because what I also said before, you're as a viewer, you think, okay, this is now the character tells me a story and this is you're you're you have to assume this is the truth. But then another one comes and tells a different the same story but from a different angle. And then you're again, okay, maybe this is something. So I think it's a great story device, but it also makes for a great testimony on memories and how you can manipulate them as well to your own benefit maybe because at the end someone is hiding something so well talking of Rashomon and the way you described it I'm making a connection to Citizen Kane maybe first of all a movie that we've talked about before when we talked about greatest movies of all time which it was considered for a long time and in Orson Welles 1941 classic It's all about the biography of a media mogul, Charles Foster Kane, but it's not told in a straightforward fashion or from his perspective. It's all the issues and, and the memories, the, the statements of important people in his life during and continued issues. The result is not, is not complete. It's an incomplete mm -hmm. puzzle. And of course, famously, at the end, the main word, the mystery word, Rosebud, everyone was, was chasing in these issues is not revealed, it's only revealed to us as the audience. We find out. And I think it's also a great film, just like Rashomon, on the incomplete or contradictory nature of truth and understanding a person, who someone was, and whether we really knew a person during our lifetime, even if we were close to them. We now talked a bit about memory, and this is also like a plot device in a sense, how characters are described or how events are described by different characters but I think it's very often also a character device to push a story into gear and I think there are a lot of comedies who do that so there is this movie Overboard with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell where she's a spoiled rich girl and I think Kurt Russell plays her janitor or something and then she falls down and she she falls out of from the boat i think hence the title and then she has a memory loss so she doesn't remember who she is and then kurt russell seizes the opportunity and tells her they're married and she's poor and da -da -da. and so there is this romantic comedy basically unfolding out of this plot device that someone has no memory loss and i think a similar movie is some um, 51st dates with drew barrymore and adam sandler her short-term memory is basically erased all the time And then the comedy stems out of it that he needs to take her on a date every day again. And he makes it, he needs to woo her every time again. And then only slowly she regains the memory and recognizes him. 
So I think this is the the comedy side of this character with no memory, but then I think also action movies do that a lot. So the Born Identity, for example, or all these, you know, these, these Total Recall and all these, I don't know, these action movies where you have a main character and he has no memory and he needs to find out where he is. Memory and manipulation, I think. I can relate with uh, two films that I thought about. Not necessarily a comedy, but at times, of course, in the style of the comedy is Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, starring a famous comedian, Jim Carrey. I thought that's one of the most clever and ingenious movies on, on memory that I've seen by Michael Gondry and written, of course, by Charlie Kaufman. And in it, Carrey has decided to erase all the memories of his lost love, his lost relationship with um, a girl called Clem, played by Kate Winslet. And there's a company offering this service to take his memory away. But as he loses memories, he starts to cling on to the memories of especially uh, all the moments he spent with his girlfriend. And they become somewhat confused in a whirlwind of, of really funny moments, poetic moments sad moments, uplifting moments. The way this is put together by, by Gondry and by Kaufman is just, it's just ingenious. It becomes a mosaic thrown into the air and they land and somehow you have to pick up the pieces. And in the end as well, just like in The Father, it makes sense, just not in a linear conventional way. The other one I was thinking of that also has to do a lot with memory and manipulation is The Manchurian Candidate, the John Frankenheimer Cold War era thriller from the early 60s starring Frank Sinatra and Lawrence Harvey, and it traces the story of US soldiers in the Korean War that are being brainwashed from the Korean side, it seems. Sinatra is one of them, and he's haunted of, of memories, of strange nightmares, how the others were trained to kill people. And Lawrence Harvey's character is then going back to the US, and he is manipulated into a, becoming a killer and, and committing a kind of a JFK-like political murder by his mother, famously played by Angela Lansbury. And Sinatra tries to stop that from happening. And these two soldiers' memories and nightmares are also pieces of the puzzle that we uh, figure out about as an audience. The effect is, is riveting and the movie was considered so shocking after the actual JFK assassination that the movie was pulled for, for decades and Sinatra brought it out himself many, many years later. In The Manchurian Candidate is really the manipulation on memory, also very visible. I think they, they are great scenes where you can really see how the mind of Lawrence Harvey is manipulated, I think with this card game and so on. So there's really also a visual representation of, of how minds are tricked in that sense. Do you think Nolan's memento relates to that? The, the tricking of the mind? It, it somehow seems to connect to that too. I was about to say, yeah, I think it, it links a little bit to, to the Nolan cinema, Christopher Nolan, that we also discussed at length in our Tenet episode. Yeah, exactly. The inception, of course, that movie is also playing on, on memory and what is real and what is not real. I think that's also in a lot of these movies we're talking about now, and it's this discussion on what you see in the film is this real is this a memory is this a dream two other movies one i just seen very recently is hiroshima mon amour by the french director Alain rené from 1959 and it's basically a love story between a french actress and a japanese architect and they're both haunted by memories of world war ii and specifically the Hiroshima bombings. The movie really dwells on this collective memory of 
of these terrible incidents, but then links it with the individual memories the characters have. So her memory and his memory, they come together, they have different perspective on what happened. The movie really shapes and lets these two characters interact. The tension continually grows on, on what she thinks she remembered and what he thinks he remembered. And I think it's a very unique movie in that sense also who plays with personal memory and collective memory. It seems that a lot of my favorite directors also have at least one film that deals with that issue, how memories are, are perceived differently or how, again, memories are manipulated. And I, and I felt finally also of uh, David Lynch, especially Mulholland Drive, which is structured like a Chinese box, telling the story of two women whose fate interrelates, that is kind of linked intricately. We don't quite know what is real, what is memory, what is imagined. And of course, as usual with Lynch, this can be very confusing, but at the same time, very beautiful, very dark. And this web of these two women's stories and memories kind of become very powerful, fascinating. And then in the end, somehow the movie dissolves into darkness and, and at the last word I think is silencio, so also silence. And then of course I have to mention my all-time favorite movie. I realized suddenly also that, that Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock is also about both memory and manipulation. Here it's about a man who's obsessed with the memory of a woman he lost and thinks he's to blame for this loss. In his trauma he tries to recreate that woman with the help of another woman who seems very similar to her. And it turns out that he seeks to recreate something that didn't exist. <laughs> in a way, he's been betrayed into having memories that were not based in reality. And that, that also becomes a very, very dark psychological thriller that questions our very basis of memory. So would you say that every great director somehow needs at least a movie about memories and maybe also about how to manipulate the characters or the audience into believing something that is not true on a timeline or that actually didn't happen but is seen through different perspectives. That seems to be a, a common trait of many great movies. I think Ingmar Bergman is also a very good example. I think Wild Strawberries is really this movie where this old professor travels through Sweden and he thinks about his life and there are scenes of his memories depicted of his first love, of his wife. Bergman is really strong there in, in creating these atmospheres of okay what is real what is a memory what is a dream also and I think the other one I would say is also Federico Fellini who's really strong in creating these moviescapes of that intertwine dreams and memory and create very personal movies I think these movies are very often very intimate in a sense yeah I must say that the father did have echoes of, of Bergman for me, especially his last film, Sarabande, but also many, many others in their intimate setting in that one apartment. There seem to be tinges of, of Bergman in it for sure. And Wild Strawberry is, is, a, is a perfect example of that because there's also a, a seamless change between memory and reality. And uh, the main character, who's also kind of of the same age as Anthony and, and the father, is walking into these memories. And only after a while you realize that this is no longer his, his, his reality that lives in, but he's walked into a scene from his past. So I think that definitely must have, to some extent, inspired Christopher Hampton and Florian Zeller when, when writing The Father, I, I imagine. And with Fellini, I thought of Otto Emezzo, which is exactly one of these examples of this 
kaleidoscope again of, of memories. It plays exactly with that. What is part of the biography of this director played by Marcello Mastroianni and what is autobiographical about Fellini? Is it really an autobiographical film or is he playing around with us? And there's also this, this, this puzzle of, of memories and characters that appear and we don't quite know where we're at sometimes. And you have to kind of <laughs> not switch off your brain, but just kind of not expect a linear timeline. You can't expect a proper character development from, from A to Z. But if you if you manage to do that, I think films by Fellini, by Bergman and by others that we've mentioned really become, they pay off hugely, I think. In a way, this is about the nature of cinema, isn't it? Editing, camera work, perspective, that's, that, that's really something that is at the basis of filmmaking. And also I think filmmaking itself is, I think on one hand it's creating a memory, but it's also preserving it at the same time. So you watch a movie, you watch it, you have emotions, you think of it, and you will have a memory of this movie. If it was a good one, if it was a bad one, you might forget <laughs> about it. But then the m movies themselves create memories. And, I, and the interesting thing is that you can actually re-watch it. And then you, you sometimes realize, oh, this is not how I remembered it. This is not how the movie was. These movies we now mentioned before, I think they're really playing on this as well that you have this, on one hand, it's very ephemeral, it's going away and it's fading and memories are, are changing and fading into reality. But at the same time, the medium of a movie itself is not ephemeral, it's there, it's preserved in a sense. It's preserving memories, preserving emotions. This is a very nice field of exploration, I would say. And I think that's why it attracts master filmmakers, because I think it's, it's a challenge. If you can write a great film that plays around with these cinematic means and makes people believe, I mean, movies are about make-believe, obviously. Mm -hmm. But if you then also manage to not just tell a story uh, with fictitious characters and in a fantasy world, but you also manage to actually play around with what is real and what isn't, what is imagined, what is only memorized, then you, you really manage your craft. And I think that's why Hitchcock does it, that's why Fellini does it, that's why Bergman does it. And I think why The Father turns out to be such a masterful film, because it, it the topic lends itself for not just a, a tragic story of a guy descending into Alzheimer more and more, which it could have been, it could have been filmed in a li linear fashion and just shown from, from A to Z. But instead, something very cinematic is made out of it. Mm -hmm. This is the impression I had with The Father, even though, oddly enough, it's, it's a stage play, but the adaptation is so cinematic. It goes to the heart of what cinema is, which is audience manipulation and, and compiling things that actually in reality didn't happen at the same time, but you're made to believe that. And it's not the blurry, you know, going over into a memory, wavy thing that yes. we see on in 70s, 80s television, which, which like I had to laugh about when I'm researching for an episode, the, the wobbly, wavy. And the know, little music going ding, ding. Yes, that's the yes. worst, you know, that would be the opposite. Like, that's the opposite, yes. Great filmmaking, but it's like the cheap cliche. Oh, people, audience, hello, we're, we're seeking into a memory now. Don't be confused. This is not real. Yeah, and then the memory scene remains in this hazy Vaseline filter, <laughs> right? So it's this little smoky thing that you realize, okay, it's a memory now. Yeah, I think that's why it's great if we have if we get every now and then such a great movie as The Father 
and can also have a look back on movie history, how the great directors did it in the past. And maybe next time when we meet, it will give us a chance to talk about a woman who's been in both types of movies, the very great and the very mediocre to bad. And I think, if I remember correctly, she has been in a number of TV episodes that probably use this cliche memory device of wavy lines and, and um, quirky music to signal it's a memory! More about that next time. Exactly. <laughs> well, thanks very much, Sam, for this very interesting talk today about movies, the father memories, our little trip down memory lane, so to speak. And I hope you all join us again next time when we are again ready for close-up. No, Dad, why do you keep going on about Paris? You told me. No, I didn't. I'm sorry, Anne, you told me the other day. Have you forgotten? She's forgotten. Paris. They don't even speak English there.